In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, and to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. For it's in him that we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Would you join me as we pray this morning? Lord Jesus, it is with, uh, with hearts that are filled with joy and gratitude that we bow before you this morning. We find ourselves here, Lord, again at the, at the end of a one year and at the precipice of a new. You have blessed us with another year of life. And we find ourselves even this morning looking backwards over what you have done for us and through us and in us over the previous year. And also at the same time looking forward with anticipation even excitement is to what you might do for us and in us and through us and the year that stretches out before us. And Lord, as we think back over the year, Lord, we can't help but be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving to you, for you have blessed us in so many ways. We give thanks to you this morning for bringing us through another year. We give thanks to you for every joy and every happiness that we enjoyed this year, for every good and and pleasurable experience that we had, we recognize, Lord, that every one was a gift, a unique gift from you. And yet, Lord, we even look back and think on those times that were difficult, those, those trials that we endured, those, uh, those moments of, of discouragement, those hard moments, even the lonely moments, the trials and the pains even, Lord. We, we give thanks for those, Lord, because we know that even in them you are maturing us and you are growing us and you are making us into the image of your Son. And we thank you that even in the midst of our hard times we, we felt your presence. For when we were discouraged, you encouraged us. And for those moments when we were lonely and you comforted us as a friend. And for those trials that you got us through. And even this morning, Lord, we stand and even sit and kneel before you this morning, being able to say confidently that every need of our life has been met in Christ this year. And we thank you for that. You've never left us, Lord. You have never abandoned us, and you've always kept faithful to your word to us. And Lord, as we look forward to a new year, we thank you in advance for the blessings that you will bless us with this year. 
for the opportunities that will come our way, Lord, we even now give thanks. Lord, we give thanks for what you've done in us uh, as a church and for what you've done in us individually, Lord, spiritually. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the things that Paul reminds us of here in Ephesians chapter 1, that you have uh, truly blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We thank you for our election this morning, Lord, that you, for some purpose hidden in your mysterious will, chose us before the foundation of the world, not because we were holy, not because of our goodness or merit, Uh, but because of your mercy and grace and kindness that you chose to pour out toward us. Lord, for that we are are honestly confessing our unworthiness, but our deep, deep gratitude that you would choose ones such as us to serve you, to represent you, to live for you. We give thanks for that this morning, Lord. We we thank you that you've adopted us into your family as sons. We thank you uh, that we have this morning as our possession, a redemption through the blood of Christ, that you have redeemed us, that you have transferred us from the the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, Jesus. And we thank you for your grace, which you have abundantly, lavishly poured out on us, uh, even, even to this very moment. And we thank you, Lord, for our inheritance that we have stored up for us, And we pray that even now, Lord, as we think about a new year, that our our thoughts and our ambitions would not be on laying up for ourselves treasures on earth, money and possessions and the things that the world pursues, but that we would be set this year on storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven, treasure that endures, treasure that's eternal, uh, that can't be robbed from us, that will never fade or tarnish or rot away. Eternal inheritance in you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit this morning with which you have sealed our salvation. Spirit which guides us every day into your will, which reminds us, who brings to our mind your word, who guides us each and every day. I give thanks for him. And there are so many more things, Lord, that we could give thanks to you for today. But at the end of the day, Lord, we are thankful for the cross, for your son Jesus who shed his blood whose body was broken, that we might be saved. We thank you for that this morning. And we thank you for the gospel, the gospel that was brought to us by faithful witnesses at some point in our life. For the fact that you opened our eyes to see it and to believe it and to receive it. We pray that this year, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to take that very same gospel uh, into a, a very lost and dying world, into our community, into our families, into our workplaces that others might see the light of the glory of Christ through our witness and be drawn to you. And we're thankful for another opportunity this morning, O Lord, to worship you, to, to lift your name on high, to exalt you as Lord of all things. We pray this morning that as we worship you, that you would fill us with your spirit afresh and anew, that you would enliven our worship that you would set our hearts on you above all things. You would make your word come alive to us as it's preached this morning. Pray for our pastor as he comes in a few moments to open your word and to deliver it. You would lead him and guide him and speak to us through him. And Lord, for those who have come this morning with particular needs in their, in their life, 
needs that they have this morning, family needs, financial needs, physical needs, emotional needs. Lord, you know those needs more intimately than we could ever imagine. And we trust and believe that even in these quiet moments, you are at work filling those needs with your abundant provision. And so we look to you, Lord, for those things and for all things this morning. And Lord Jesus, we lift you up and we praise your holy name. Help us today, tomorrow, this week, and this year to live our lives to the praise of your glory. Therefore, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue on today and the uh, <clears throat> the Gospel of John. Turn there, if you would, in your Bible to the first chapter. We might get out of the first chapter and within the next few weeks. Also, if you're new to our congregation... Um, when we say Happy New Year, we also say Happy Anniversary. This is the third anniversary of Grace on the Ashley Church. But we still love each other. <laughs> Go figure. Bunch of sinners just loving on each other. Mm. And uh, we are blessed to be able to have looked through the prologue here of, of John, the first 18 verses, and um, Pastor Greg's <coughs> message on John the Baptist. We went beyond that a little bit, too. And, and today we begin at uh, verse uh, 29, after taking a couple of weeks off from this text. Before I read it, though, there's something we need to understand, and that is from the very beginning of the Old Testament, there was this hope, this expectation. You can, you can read it. You just read through the Old Testament. You'll see it. If you read through the Bible, you started January 1st uh, in the Old Testament, and, 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 and so you, you, you see that there's this hope and expectation, which we talked about all through uh, December, <clears throat> as if you could hear, uh, you, you hear in your mind while you're reading and studying the Old Testament, someone is coming. Someone's coming. We know that from Adam and Eve. that they, They're driven out of the Garden of Eden, and, and there is that promise that someone is coming who one day will bruise the serpent's head. And that hope just increases on and on and on. Then you get to the prophets, and the prophets, a prophet after prophet after prophet, gives us hint after hint after hint that someone is coming. And then you get to the end of Malachi, and nobody's come. That you realize the Old Testament is just full of unfulfilled prophecies. And then John the Baptist, here at the beginning of the New Testament, <clears throat> here, some people would call him the last Old Testament prophet. Actually, he's preaching and he's baptizing and he declares 
someone is here. He's come. There he is. And in verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He bore witness. What a great witness (laughs) to bear. Did John's witness about Jesus Christ, it's quite possibly the greatest witness ever given to any man. He's unmistakable in his proclamation about who Jesus was. Jesus even affirmed that in in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is, this is that transition between John's ministry and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, um, the temptation has uh, most likely already taken place. Jesus may be coming from that 40 days of temptation when John says, There he is. Behold. Look. The Lamb of God. And there's no doubt that John has already spoken about this coming Messiah. He's already preached about the coming Messiah. But when Christ arrives, it seems like this transition takes place quickly. Now, Herod makes sure the transition takes place at some point immediately. But, but, but it seems like it's, it's going to take place quickly once the word is out that The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come. There He is. The time of Jesus' coming really means the end of John's ministry. John Calvin, uh, in talking about this, says, When the sun is risen, the dawn suddenly disappears. And so, after testifying to uh, the, the, this section pri- just prior to verse 29, he's, the, 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 the um, Pharisees sent a committee to question John, to test John. We love committees, don't we? And I'm sure John did too. And so, this committee of priests were sent to him, and, and, and he has told them that the someone that they are looking for to provide the truth 
that they are looking for, the answer, the Messiah, he's come. John tells them that. The fulfillment that you've been looking for has come. And the next day, verse 29, I doubt the committee's still there. But the next day, he points him out. He tells the priest he's come, and then the next day, he points him out when he sees him. For everyone to see. And then we see in this passage, these verses I just read for you. First, that Christ is the Lamb of God. We see, secondly, that Christ is the preeminent one. We see, thirdly, Christ is the one on whom the Spirit remained. I know that's, a, that, that's, um, uh, that's not good wording, but I just didn't have time to work it out. In fact, the first third point was longer than a, the title of a Puritan sermon. I mean, it was long. So, And then, number four, Christ is the Son of God. So first he says, look. The Lamb of God. Christ is the Lamb of God. The very dawn of His ministry, the very beginning of His ministry. Jesus is greeted with words by John the Baptist that tells him what the central part of Christ's ministry is going to be. He reminds Jesus even of His destiny. Sacrificial agony on the cross for the sin of mankind. In three years, Jesus, everybody will know you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The shadow of the cross was always cast on the entire ministry of Jesus. And we see here from the very beginning Christ. The Lamb of God. We don't see that, that designation in any other gospel. Uh, this is the only one. And down through the centuries, we've noticed that the Lamb of God, that phrase, that designation, that term, has been one of the most cherished symbols of Jesus Christ throughout all of Christendom. But this phrase also defines his identity. We see history in this. We see prophecy in this phrase. And those two things, history and prophecy, sort of come together in providing a background for this title that he's been given, the Lamb of God. And when John says that about Jesus, those daily temple sacrifices come to mind to every single person that's listening. So what did it mean for John to say that? What did it mean to all those who are listening when John says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sin, singular, not plural. They all knew about the sacrificial lamb for centuries. You know that story of Abraham, the father of their nation. 
at God's command, Abraham takes his son up onto the mountain to sacrifice his son. And when, at just the right moment, Isaac turned... The, Isaac's no dummy, you know. He, just the right moment, just before it's too late, he turns and he asks... My father. And Abraham said, Here I am, son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? He's laying there. He's tied to a rock or something. And he notices there's no lamb. Where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And he did. Israel also known about the lamb as a result of the institution of Passover in Exodus. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house was a sign that the angel of death was to see that blood on the doorpost and what? Pass over. Pass by. They knew that the the, the, the daily services in the temple, that the lambs and goats were being sacrificed, and they knew that in every single instance of sacrifice, that that sacrifice meant that the innocent substitute died in place of the one who had sinned. And on the basis of John the Baptist comes along and he explains, look, the Lamb of God. He recognizes that the sacrifices that have already been mentioned in Scripture are to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he was to bear that sin, as Isaiah the prophet had said. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. When I read that, I think, you know, there's some uh, more liberal denominations in America today who've decided to take out certain hymns out of their hymn books because it talks about the wrath of God. It talks about God crushing His Son. And so we can't sing about that, can we? How sad. What do they do when they get to this passage? And the picture of the Lamb we see just a couple of verses later in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. James Boyce suggested, as with other commentators, um, that it's possible that as John identifies Jesus as the sin-bearing lamb, there may have been, even at this very moment, flocks passing by, flocks of lambs passing by on their way to Jerusalem, 
walking by the walls of Jerusalem as they are to be the ones that are sacrificed for the Passover each year. Why would we suggest that? In chapter 2, we see that the Passover is just a few days away. Down in verse 13. How do we know it's a few days? How do we know weeks and weeks and weeks didn't happen between these you know, 20, 30 verses? Well, we, we know that because John the Apostle in writing says, the next day. And then in the next section, he says, the next day. And in the next section, on the third day. So we know it's just a few days that we're talking about here. And it could be that John is seeing this picture of these lambs being led to slaughter in Jerusalem, very close to the Passover. And then he sees Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God. There he is. And Peter, in writing about this ransom given for us, says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Charles Simeon says, such was the Lamb of Christ. He was the Lamb whom all the others typified. He was truly without spot or blemish and was offered on the altar of the cross, not merely for the good, not merely for our good, but in our place, in our stead. He was really a propitiatory sacrifice. Inasmuch as he bore in his own body the curse due to sin and expiated all its guilt, As there was no variation of the daily sacrifices, but only a repetition of the same. So his one offering of himself is the sole cause of our acceptance with God, nor need to be repeated, because the virtue of it extends from the beginning to the end of time. Hallelujah. The major point is it was the Lamb of God. It's the blood of the Lamb that saved the people. That the Lamb was sacrificed. That is, the blood was shed as a substitute for the people. The Lamb symbolized Christ, our Passover. Paul uses that term, Christ, our Passover, who was sacrificed for us. And so, if we believe in His Blood is applied to our hearts. He saves us. If we do not believe, then His blood is not applied to our hearts and we are destroyed. It's the Lamb of God who is sacrificed for us. It's the Lamb of God whose blood redeems us. It's the Lamb of God whose blood saves us. And just a little side note here. It, it should be noted that Christ did all of this willingly. He was the sacrificial lamb willingly. He was our substitute willingly. He was our sin bearer willingly. He spilt his blood on the cross 
willingly. And since it occurs in the Gospel of John, I thought I'd share that too in John 10, 17, and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so God is satisfied with the settlement for sin that Christ made. If any person really believes that the blood of Christ is precious, it truly believes that the blood of Christ covers his sins, and they turn from those sins, well, God will take that person's belief and count it as righteousness. The person is counted righteous by God. And then John says, this Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He's the Redeemer. He takes away the sin of the world. Something John the Baptist couldn't do. John the Baptist could preach. John the Baptist could baptize. But he couldn't take away the sin of the world. We talked about this last week in Titus 2. That message that all of you were here for. Because Paul, in writing to Titus... said in verse 11 of chapter 1, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Bringing salvation for all people. And and we think, um, okay, some of us believe in limited atonement. How does that happen? Bringing salvation for all people. Christ's salvation comes for all people. Well, what we have to realize in the Titus passage is that the very first word in that verse is for the grace of God has appeared. (coughs) And the first ten verses are connected to this verse because of that word for or therefore. And the first ten verses there are talking about different kinds of people. And those are the people that he's talking about. In this context, all people refers to the different kinds of people that he's already been talking about. Young and old and rich and poor and and females and slaves. The grace of God has appeared for all people, all kinds of people. Christ's salvation has come to them all, so all of them may be called to live godly lives. And we read this quote last week from William Hendrickson. Male or female, old or young, rich or poor, all are guilty before God, and from them all God gathers His people. Aged men, aged women, young women, younger men, and even slaves should live consecrated lives. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to men of all these various groups or classes. And that relates to what John says when he says, The Lamb of God has died and takes away 
the sins of the world. The Lamb of God isn't just taking away the sins of Israel. In the Titus passage, we could even say the grace of God did not appear simply to save the men of Israel. The Lamb of God isn't just here to take away the sins of Israel, but the Lamb of God comes and takes away the sins of the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the slaves and the women and the children, all the world, not just Israel. He is the Lamb of God. Now, that's a Jewish thing. Sacrificing lambs, that's a Jewish thing. But this lamb's sacrifice will not be just for the Jews. And that phrase, take away, means to lift away, to carry off. It means to, to bear in one's behalf as one substitute. Christ was the sacrificial Lamb of God who bore our sins. He lifted sins off of us, bore them, and carried them away. Hallelujah. And Peter reminds us of that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The writer of Hebrews, too, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, the people of Israel, they were familiar with lambs being sacrificed. They were familiar with this little cute little animal being used for sacrifices. At Passover, each family had to have a lamb. And during the year, two lambs a day uh, were sacrificed. You know, that's a lot of blood. plus all the other lambs for personal sacrifices. But what we see in the Old Testament system was these lambs were brought by men to men. The lamb that John is saying, look, he's here, is brought by God to men. Those lambs of old are for Israel alone, but this particular lamb would shed his blood for the whole world. Even those hated Samaritans. F.B. Meyer says, The lamb, as it has been slain, must be beheld both here and hereafter in this world and in all worlds. Not his character, however fair. Not his words, however much light they cast on the mysteries of life and death. Not his miracles, however strong their testimony of his divine mission. But his appointment to bear the sin of the world. This is the primary aspect in which we are to behold him. So in the Old Testament, we ask the question, where's the lamb? Someone's coming. Where is he? In the, in the Gospels, 
we see this emphasis, especially in the Gospel of John. Behold the Lamb of God, He's here. And for those of you who have trusted Him as Lord and Savior, one day you will get to sing with the heavenly choir, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Secondly, we see Christ is the preeminent one. Verses 30 and 31. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Jesus Christ is the, he's before me. He's the preeminent one. That, that means that he is the one who is before all. And John repeats that. This is the third time he said this. Look at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Pastor Greg preached about that several weeks ago. And then in uh, verse uh, 27, he says it again another way. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. John's fame, whatever fame he had, was to be superseded by Jesus' fame. And Christ's priority comes from his preexistence. We, we, we talked about this over and over in our first couple of messages out of uh, John 1. He was before me. Well, John knew that he wasn't before him in a human sense. John was, a, they were cousins. John was about six months older than Jesus. And John knew that he was older than Jesus. And if he knew he was older than Jesus, when he says, he came before me, he must be talking about something else. He's talking about the pre-existence of Jesus. The eternal pre-existence. Of the one who was God. And he says, he says this several times, I did not know him. And he said, I myself did not know him. Then he said, I did not know him. He says it three or four times. They were related. Mary and Elizabeth were relatives. Luke tells us this whole story. We don't know of any contacts between them and their childhood and their adolescence. God would send his man to Israel in his good time. John knew that. There are all kinds of possibilities. And a couple of them can be used together, I think. Even though they were cousins, they might not have known each other as adults. Some people would say, in appearance, John was rather kooky. He spent time in the desert. He spent time in seclusion. Jesus was in Galilee. So is that that sense, and, and this can be argued simply, in the, simply so that they might not be charged with collusion. 
They did not spend their adult years together. At least, they did. Even the close Jewish families probably spent a lot of time together in a close-knit group as they were growing up. That's possible. But it could be, too, that they were separated at some point and did not spend time together. Simply so they wouldn't be charged with coming up. Hey, these guys have spent their entire, the first 30 years of their lives together planning this thing. That's quite possible. Or it could be said, and we do know this to be the case, he didn't know him in the sense, I knew he was my cousin, but I didn't know he was the Messiah. His testimony tells us of that. I was—I didn't know he was the Messiah until the, the dove came. You see that in verse 33. He on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So we know that John the Baptist made a practice of baptizing. That's why, that's why we call him John the Baptist. He preached and he baptized. We know he did that. And can you imagine that every person that he was baptizing, he would, there'd be this slight pause. Is this the one? Can you imagine that? And then that one does come. And he is baptized. And John testifies here. This, this is, we, don't, we don't have Jesus' baptism, baptism in, the, in the Gospel of John. Jesus, John is just talking about it. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus comes, he baptizes him. And it happens. And it's confirmed. And it's cousin Jesus. It's probably some of both of those things. Certainly the testimony of the dove confirms it. John did not know that Jesus was the coming one until it was revealed to him by the Father. All John knew was that he was to prepare the way, baptizing with water. John didn't know that Jesus was to be the Messiah. John didn't know that Jesus was to be the Christ, the preeminent one, the eternal God. And John's example to us is so important because this is pretty much the end of his ministry. But his example to us is so important. We must follow this example to declare Christ who is before all. He is the preeminent one. Brothers and sisters, we are to believe God's promise. The Messiah has come. And we're to act. We're to get about the business 
of missions. We're to get about the business of proclaiming Christ. Oh, how we fail. Oh, how we must be on our knees seeking forgiveness. Third thing we see in this passage. Christ is the one on whom the Spirit remained. You see that in 32 and 33. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John, the apostle, who's writing this, made very clear the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus. One baptizes with water, one baptizes with the Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, as opposed to baptism in water, that is a, that, that is a crucial distinction between their two ministries. And it's important for the church. John had been told by God the sign of the dove would occur. The person marked out by the Spirit's coming and, and, and the Spirit's presence would be the one who baptizes with the Spirit. So he didn't know. He didn't know until that happened. You know, cleansing with water is one thing. The cleansing produced by the Holy Spirit is another thing and a much greater thing. We see that three years later, 50 days after the resurrection, baptism of the Holy Spirit um, inaugurates or ordains the church. The new age has come. The church age, the age of the Spirit has come. He baptizes with the Spirit. He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, John says here. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ was the one who would give of His Spirit to those who follow Him. Or we could put it in another way, that, it, that Jesus would come to live within the lives of his followers. So when we bear witness to Jesus today, we talk not only of who Jesus is, but we talk of what Jesus has done and how this person, Jesus, can Enter into my life and fill my life and your life. When a person is baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ, the Holy Spirit enters the life of the believer and comes a, becomes a permanent experience in the life of that believer. Christ baptizes believers with the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul confirms this in his writing to the Corinthians in the first letter. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now, I don't know how the second blessing people handle the word all, but all only means one thing to me. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. He's talking to the church. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Listen, the Holy Spirit is not optional equipment. You cannot be a Christian and not be baptized by the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. You may not feel differently. I hope you do. But you may not feel differently because this baptism doesn't take place in your emotions. This baptism doesn't take place in your feelings. When you're baptized in water, you feel the water. But the baptism in the Spirit does not take place in your emotions or in your... It does take place in your spirit. It's a change that takes place in your inner self. It's a change that God does. You don't have to conjure up. It's a change that God does when He takes you away from the family of Adam and adopts you into His own family. That's what the baptism of the Spirit is. And then lastly, we see Christ is the Son of God. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Son of God. We talked about this earlier in this chapter. Not a Son of God, but the Son of God. He's the only Son. He's the only begotten Son. He's the only begotten Son who came from the Father in heaven. And that is the deepest part or the highest part. That is the most, coming from the Father in heaven, that is the most intimate place where He comes from. That is the most honorable and the highest fellowship with the Father, the only begotten Son. And you know, that's a, this is a crucial, this is the theme of John's Gospel. The crucial theme of John's writing this particular Gospel. We, we've seen this verse a number of times in these messages. John 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So it's only fitting, too, that He begins the gospel with this particular declaration. So that someone who was foretold in the Old Testament 
is the sacrificial Lamb of God, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And he has just one more title. He's the Son of God. He's God Himself. The Lamb equals the Son. And the God and the Creator of the universe has come into this world as one of us. Subject to our pain, subject to our grief, subject to our poverty, subject even to death. And He's come to bring His love and His forgiveness and His healing. Now, I spent, I spent most of Friday reading through the entire New Testament, counting how many times that phrase, Son of God, is in the New Testament. Do you believe that? We have computers now. I did a search. And in about a split second, 232 times we see Son of God in the New Testament. I know, some of y'all got your phones out now. You're doing a search, aren't you? That's important. And we'll see that in these messages through John over and over and over again. And we'll say it every single time because we're slow to catch on to things sometimes. And so John gives this... Three wonderful testimonies about Christ's person and His work. As the Lamb, His mission was to be one of redemption. As a baptizer in the Spirit, He's going to found the church of Jesus Christ. And as the Son of God, all hail the power of Jesus' name. He is the one and the only one who deserves our adoration, our praise, and our obedience. Matthew Henry said, God could have taken away sin by taking away the sinner as He took away the sin of the old world. You know, you know that. That's why there's so much death and destruction in the Old Testament. God took away sin many, many times by just taking out the sinners. He could still do that. But here is a way of doing away sin, yet sparing the sinner, by making his son sin, that is, a sin offering for us. And that's why we stand here and preach. That's why we get to the gospel as fast as we can, no matter what the text is. That's why the gospel is all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why lambs are talked about in the Old Testament, because the lamb is coming. Someone is coming. Alexander McLaren says the sum of all preaching is to point people to Jesus and declare, behold, the lamb of God. He says, my task 
and that of all preachers, if we understand it aright, is but to repeat the same message, to concentrate attention on the same fact. The Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. It is the one thing needful for you, dear friend, to believe. It is the truth that we all need most of all. There is no reason for our being gathered together now except that I may beseech you to behold for yourselves the Lamb of God which takes away the world's sin. And I say, Amen. And if you never have, if you never have beheld Him, you must. You must behold the Lamb of God today. For if He doesn't bear your sin... Your sin will remain on your own back and will crush you. It will crush you. God, Isaiah 53 tells us that God crushed His Son with the sins of His people. But if you don't behold Him today, you'll keep your sin and it will crush you. And you ultimately will have to pay the price for it. The substitute has come. Robert Murray McShane says, Only a broken-hearted sinner can receive a crucified Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him today. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a closing song. And during that time, we encourage you to, if you have questions you need to, uh, uh, someone to pray for you, if you need those questions answered, if whatever your needs are, Pastor Greg and others will be in the back. And um, during this song, consider beholding the Lamb of God. Father, take these next few moments. We talk and sing about faith. And we pray, Father, that you might move us, that you might change us, That you might fill us with your Spirit as we come to receive you as Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.